On this episode of American Thought Leaders. It is a disaster waiting to happen because TikTok, though the company denies it, is fundamentally obligated to follow the laws that were created by the Chinese Communist Party. Today I sit down with Jeffrey Kane, an award-winning journalist, technologist, and author of The Perfect Police State, an undercover odyssey into China's terrifying surveillance dystopia of the future. Everybody was constantly being watched by an artificial intelligence system, which was called the IJOP. Kane recently testified before the U.S. Senate about TikTok and why he believes it's a unique national security threat. This is an example of censorship. Not only are we discriminating against the poor and, and people who don't look super attractive, but it was being used to tow the party line to suppress news about human rights abuses in China. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Jeffrey Kane, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me, Jan. Jeffrey, I've wanted to have you on the show ever since you put out The Perfect Police State, which is an absolutely amazing book. And we'll definitely talk about this. Before we go there, though, you just recently were in the Senate giving testimony about social media and national security issues, specifically around TikTok and how it functions in the US and frankly around the world. So. Tell me, what did you find? Oh, so much. The, the problem of TikTok is that it is a national security threat to the United States and to countries outside of China. It is a disaster waiting to happen because TikTok, though the company denies it, is fundamentally obligated to follow the laws of China, uh, the laws that were created by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so here's how TikTok works. It is, it's an app that uh, it's extremely popular among Generation Z users. It's sort of like the next wave of uh, the next Facebook, the next wave of social media. And anyone can go on there and create a short uh, 12 or 15 second clip of them dancing to music or you know, showing their cat, or you can load up celebrities and see what, what they're up to. The app itself seems quite harmless. There's nothing about it on first glance that would look particularly uh, nefarious or evil. Um, but beneath the surface, there is a lot going on here. So uh, TikTok, it was originally created by ByteDance, which was a Chinese company uh, based in Beijing. Uh, it had been um, created by uh, one of the major figures who, who was deeply involved in the world of Chinese artificial intelligence technology. Um, it, it received enormous amounts of funding from a major uh, Silicon Valley uh, investment firm, so, so Sequoia Capital, which was a company that was trying to expand in China. And it wasn't until about five years ago, six years ago, um, that TikTok was created by this company, ByteDance, through an expansion into the American market. They had acquired a local company, and so a fellow Chinese company that was developing a music app that was getting popular in America called Music Lee. And uh, ByteDance decided to acquire this and used it to create what we now know as TikTok. Now here's the first big red flag, and there are many red flags, but the, the biggest red flag upon this acquisition is that TikTok did not notify the US government about the acquisition. There is a body called CFIUS, which is the, the Council on Foreign Investment in the United States. This is the body that is charged with reviewing uh, all sorts of uh, you know, Chinese investments in America, not just Chinese, but uh, foreign investments in America that might pose some kind of national security risk. Um, so CFIUS has reviewed investments in semiconductors, in 
surveillance cameras, um, you know, it, military weaponry or the components of weaponry, anything that could potentially pose a risk to the well-being of Americans, to American safety, has to go through a review by CFIUS. Now, uh, TikTok, upon entering Amer America, uh, you know, it, it had these grand plans to uh, use data. So, so TikTok is essentially a data scooping machine. It's it's getting your um, you know your face, your voice. Uh, it's it's getting your behavior, your movements. You know, it's learning. It, it, like the the algorithms in TikTok, and TikTok has not publicly said much about its algorithms. But um, like all social media platforms, these systems are uh, extremely profitable because they gather so much data and they use that data to sell ads to consumers. Now. The problem, the first problem here is that TikTok entered the American market trying to appeal to Gen Z, to the next generation, to the celebrities, you know, trying to build up the cat videos and the dancing videos. And this was, uh, you know, I, I believe that this was a kind of mask um, that covered up, you know, some of the, the darker realities going on underneath the surface. And that the big problem was, well, you know, this is a company that it, it, it was based in China. Uh, it, it was a company that is that will be responsive to Chinese law under request, and yet they're expanding in this massive way in America, and there wasn't even a CFIUS review at the beginning. Um, that should sound alarm bells. You know, why did TikTok decide not to do that review? And it's as if they kind of snuck into the market and placed their software in the hands of. The next generation. Let me just jump in right here, okay? The fact that they didn't disclose this for review at CFIUS, doesn't that somehow create an opportunity to do a CFIUS review? Or like, what, what is the status of this right now? The, the Trump administration back in 2020 uh, initiated a CFIUS review. Donald Trump wanted to get TikTok banned. And uh, there, so, so TikTok challenged this review in court, challenged some of the decisions. The goal was going to be to probably sell TikTok to Oracle. It, this would be a forced sale. Uh, Oracle was, was lining up as the main buyer. Um, this sale never went into force, and the Biden administration stepped in later. Um, didn't completely kill the review, but but uh, for for so for the last year, TikTok has been under a CFIUS, a CFIUS review, but they have been very quiet about it. It's not clear what's going to come of it, but you know there are conversations happening between TikTok and Oracle, the American company. Uh, I can't say for sure now whether it's going to be sold to Oracle or sold to an American company, but there will be, according to TikTok, some kind of agreement with the U.S. government to, um, you know, to ensure that this, this kind of data sharing in, in China won't be possible. That's their claim. I don't totally believe it, but we'll get into that. So there's two areas that I see are hugely problematic, maybe already be obvious to our viewers. Okay, number one is of course like every conceivable data point that this app in these you know highly sophisticated computers that we call phones have is being gathered by this app. That's number one, and this and this company is subservient to the CCP, and the CCP whatever advantage it can take, we know it will. So this is not a good recipe. That's one. The second part though, and uh, this I didn't see as much covered in your testimony is that they also decide what you see. Yes. And, and very non-transparently, right? And also in the realm of this, what we call ephemeral experiences. So in other, in other words, if there isn't someone actually watching what is being served up to people and somehow tabulating it, it's gone forever. And we won't know 
what our kid or uh, you know our uh, uh, person working in the national security establishment is seeing as they're using it. So these are these are the two areas that jump to mind for me. Oh yes, I agree completely. One of the big problems is that uh, the TikTok algorithm does decide what you see. Uh, the, so these these algorithms with with all social media groups are uh, very opaque. You know these are these are seen as protected intellectual property. They don't want that information to leak because they say it'll damage their business. But TikTok uh, executives have admitted in the past that the the algorithm that that TikTok has been used to suppress. Um, bad news coming out of China. So they said uh, at, at one point uh, there was a, a TikTok executive who testified before the British Parliament saying that news about the Uyghurs in western China in, in the region called Xinjiang, um, that news was being suppressed at one point. There are other examples. There was a leaked uh, a, a, a kind of like a moderation guideline at one point. This was leaked uh, back in back in 2019, and it showed the um, TikTok or By ByteDance instructing the global TikTok moderators, including in America, to uh, you know look around for material that might you know look bad. So you know I anything that shows poverty, like showing ugly people. Uh, poverty, slums, you know, poor people. It literally was saying these kinds of things, and and the moderation guidelines said you need to suppress this kind of material. We only want to see beautiful people on here who who are happy and, and nice and and you know great to look at, and they're attractive and so forth. Um, you know, th this is an example of censorship and abusive censorship um, because you know not only are we discriminating against. You know, the, the poor and, and people who don't look super attractive, but it, this is also being used, it was being used to tow the party line to suppress news about Uyghurs, to suppress news about human rights abuses in China. So, so let's jump to this other part that you've been so focused on, which is sort of the, the, the data gathering and what sort of exposure that creates. So give me the picture. So here's the problem. The Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party under Xi Jinping, has repeatedly said uh, that it wants to become a global leader in artificial intelligence, that AI is going to be a major pillar of Chinese military power, its surveillance power. Um, Xi Jinping has made it clear that he's trying to build this new society that will be driven by, by this total surveillance state, that we know everything that's going on within China, potentially outside of China too. This is where the TikTok and the ByteDance connection becomes extremely problematic because under Chinese law and under the Chinese Communist Party, you know, any any executive, you know, whether you're at TikTok, the American version, you know, of the company, of the app, or you're at ByteDance in China, this is the this is uh, Douyin, which is the, the Chinese version of the app. You know, there's not going to be a separate line between those two. The Chinese Communist Party will see TikTok as fundamentally a Chinese company and one that needs to report to the Chinese Communist Party. Um, there is so the the national intelligence law of China. There's also the national security law. These are some very terrifying and totalitarian laws that require people in China to partake in intelligence operations upon request. So let's say, you know, hypothetically, and this might have happened, we, we can't say for sure because it would be all secret, but hypothetically, uh, let's say the, the Ministry of State Security uh, or the Ministry of Public Security, two very powerful bodies in China, uh, issue a demand to Chinese employees uh, of TikTok who are in, based in China 
to hand over the data of certain people. These could be Hong Kong dissidents. These could be uh, American military commanders. Uh, you know, it could be anybody who might be uh, of an interesting nature to the Chinese Communist Party. Those executives are required by Chinese law to hand over the data. It doesn't matter if TikTok says, and this is how TikTok responds, they always say, we are an American company. We're separate. We're not based, you know, we're, we're based all over the world. We're not the same as the Chinese company ByteDance. But they also admit that they have employees in China. And these employees, as we know, are subject to the harsh and brutal realities of the Chinese Communist Party. So tell me a little bit about the, is it called the master admin? Yes, so this was a part of audio files that were leaked in BuzzFeed, the news website. There were 20 audio files uh, that were taken from various meetings between uh, ByteDance and TikTok developers, software developers. They were just talking about the, the problems inherent in having uh, you know Chinese executives who are overseeing them. They they and in one of in one of these audio recordings, uh, one of the executives uh, was talking about this this master admin who is an unnamed figure. We're not sure who this person is, but um, said that this person is somebody in Beijing who has access to all TikTok data, all global data. Um, this, you know, TikTok denies that this is true. They say that there is no master admin. There's nobody with this title. But it's clearly on the audio recording. These are internal meetings, and somebody is talking about a master admin. That's very strong evidence right there. And, uh, you know, it's, I, like, if, if you go back through TikTok's testimony um, before the Senate, before Congress, uh, they've always testified that China does not have, you know, China, the Chinese company does not have access to American data, that there's a wall between them. This evidence right here contradicts what they've been telling us under oath. You know, this, this is um, truly devastating for them because if they are found to be, you know, lying under oath or withholding information under oath, yeah, that's uh, that could put TikTok in big legal trouble. There have been a number of, of, of executives who have testified. We'll see uh, exactly what's going to happen in the future. But the evidence that, com that keeps coming out contradicts what they say under oath in front of American senators. So this revelation about the master ad admin is the big one. There were also audio files on there which showed uh, you, you could hear people talking about how they had to go through Chinese executives and Chinese developers in China to figure out how the data of Americans was being uh, observed and used. Uh, I mean, we could go on and on about this, but that BuzzFeed report was particularly devastating. Uh, TikTok has come out in full blast trying to deny that this is the case, but the audio files are there. One thing we know about AI and the development of AI is that you basically want to have maximum data to feed into AI to basically teach it, to have it to, to, to have it to function. This is what I'm seeing from what you're telling me. You know, we have, I think, what is it, 80 million American users for TikTok? That's a pretty large data set. If, and, you know, this sort of unlimited 24-7 data coming from the phone, uh, because, of course, these apps are collecting not just, you know, when they're on, in many cases. Um, and we have the Chinese Communist Party, which is deeply interested in developing AI. You might think that, that there might be some kind of prerogative to use that information on their side, uh, given how they function. Oh, without a doubt, there is a huge prerogative uh, under the Chinese Communist Party to do whatever it can 
to get that data. The Chinese Communist Party, we all know, is a ruthless organization. It is uh, vicious and authoritarian. They've put 1.8 million people in concentration camps in Western China, which is the biggest internment of a minority since the Holocaust. Um, I mean, we're talking about very serious crimes against, human against humanity and genocide here. We know that the Communist Party, you know, they're not going to care if there is a, a you know, a, a small legal wall that separates the Chinese ByteDance company from the American TikTok company. Um, you know, one other piece of evidence to look at here is, well, TikTok even says in its own privacy policy, if you read it carefully, it says we can share data with our corporate group. And that's in quotes. That's literally what it says. So TikTok was pressed about this in a previous congressional hearing. The senator asked them three times, what is the definition of our corporate group? Does this include ByteDance in China? And after dodging the question repeatedly, finally TikTok admitted that yes, our corporate group includes ByteDance, which means that they, you know, according to their own policies, they might actually share the data of people around the world with the Chinese arm. We do hold that to a high standard and we have access control. Hey, Mr. Beckman, we're gonna try a third time because the words that came out of your mouth have no relation to the question you were asked. Your privacy policy says you will share information with your corporate group. I'm asking a very simple question. Is ByteDance, your parent company, headquartered in Beijing, part of your corporate group? Yes or no, as you use the term in your privacy policy? Senator, um, I, I think it's important that I address the broader point in, in, your, in your statement. So are you willing to answer the question, yes or no? It is a yes or no question. Are they part of your corporate group or not? Yes, Senator, it is. Yeah, it's all in the fine print, isn't it? It's absolutely in the fine print, and that has been TikTok's strategy. Uh, when they come under criticism, when they are under the microscope, their strategy has been to deflect, to distract, to confuse people, and to use fine, fine print and little technical you know, sleight of hands to try to distract people from the reality and the truth. Um, even in my testimony, a, a TikTok public relations officer responded on Twitter, uh, pointed out all these little kind of technicalities, like, well, technically, ByteDance is not uh, in, in China. The parent company, ByteDance, is technically in the Cayman Islands. You know, we're, we're technically not reporting to a Chinese company. But that's absolutely missing the point. That's just taking my testimony out of context, trying to smear me and discredit me with these little technicalities. It doesn't address the, the underlying reality that TikTok reports to the Cayman Islands company. The Cayman Islands shell company also owns ByteDance, the Chinese company. They're all a part of the same corporate group. There's no fundamental separation between them. What is the relationship between these large companies like Huawei, like ByteDance, and of course TikTok with the Chinese Communist Party? So in China, there's no separation of private business and the public government like what we have in the United States. Here, you know, Google does not have to report to the American government. Google, you know, Tesla does not report to the White House. They might have their relationships. They might have their lobbying and so forth. But, uh, you know, the, the, the White House can, cannot call Apple and tell them 
what to do and what not to do. Apple even built in uh, that a feature that prevented the FBI for a long time from breaking into phones and gathering data. Um, so there's a clear separation between government and private business, which is quite healthy, I would say. In China, it is not the case at all. Um, that, that is absolutely a, a line that does not exist. A company might look like it's private on paper. It might have all the legal fixtures in place that give the impression that ByteDance or Alibaba is a separate entity from the government. But the Chinese system is so different from America. You know, in America, we have separation of powers. We have uh, you know, three branches of government. In, in China, it's ruled by the party. It, it's simply that there is the Communist Party. There's one single party that runs everything. And all laws are underneath the party. All, uh, you know, the judicial system is underneath the party. It's not rule of law. It's ruled by the party. And that is why the Chinese Communist Party is, is just so threatening and forceful when it comes to uh, you know, forcing these companies to, to follow its dictates. We've seen in recent years uh, various cases of, of the Chinese Communist Party cracking down on, on tech companies. So Jack Ma, the head of Alibaba, had disappeared for quite some time. Um, you know, others were uh, being sentenced and arrested. There was a lot of action in this area because the Chinese Communist Party did not want companies going outside of its dictates. They wanted to remind private companies that you ultimately work for us. Yeah, and that, that, that was actually a very interesting moment. I mean, sort of the, the, one of the analyses I heard was, well, he got a little bit too independent there, Jack, right? That whole crackdown, it came from the, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party was just concerned about the wealth being amassed by these private uh, technology tycoons. Um, these tycoons were, you know, amassing their own followings in China. They were per perhaps even rivaling the Chinese Communist Party in many ways, but ultimately the Chinese Communist Party is the one in charge and they want to have access to that AI, to that data. They want to have access to those private technologies being developed by ByteDance and, and WeChat and Alibaba and so forth. So if they do get too far away from the party core, the party core, which is Xi Jinping and the Politburo, they will always reach out and try to bring them back in back into the to the center, back into the fold. So, you know, there's people that believe that TikTok should be banned. It almost was, as we mentioned earlier. And then the others that say, hey, you know, it's a free market. That's un unfair, unreasonable to do. It'll have other negative downstream consequences. Where do you stand on this? My stance is that uh, TikTok should, at minimum, be sold to an American company. We cannot have major uh, Communist Party-connected companies in China uh, running massive social media platforms in America. It is, it's, it's the Trojan horse, it's the mole, it's, it's just, it, it's everything that you do not want in a modern uh, democracy. Um, it's also a new problem because we now live in this age of smartphones and software, you know, this kind of problem did not exist in the past in the Cold War. We were more concerned uh, about the, the hardware aspect of it. So the missiles being pointed at each other and, and the potential for nuclear war, you know, that still does, it's still a possibility. It hasn't gone away. But there's this added element now of the way that we use software and social media and the way that it exposes us to you know, threats, to, um, to major foreign threats from hostile powers who are looking to undermine us from the inside. Well, 
It's interesting that you say that. So I, I just want to briefly mention the work of uh, Dr. Robert Epstein, who uh, you know basically has looked at how certain big tech companies, multiple different ones, are able to influence public opinion in many cases without the people realizing themselves that they're being influenced. So some of the work that he's done shown that you can, for example, for someone that's undecided, this isn't for people that already know exactly what they want to do, you can shift how someone will vote, right, without them even being aware that they've been shifted by doing, you know, basically extensive double-blind sort of tests on how people's preferences change and so forth. This work to me is, you know, incredibly disturbing. For, and, and by the way, he also shows that it has been done by American companies in different contexts. One of the most, and I'll mention this, one of the most sort of I guess stark examples, and I don't think the company even realized at the time that it was doing something like this, but uh, Facebook at one point basically sent out, uh, hey, come out and vote, basically, to the Hispanic community, right? And so, and it worked. It increased the voting. And actually publicized this thing, look, we've been really effective at doing this. Of course, the reality is that you can, some, you know, a, a political actor, someone wants to act in a political way, might say, oh, look, this group in particular votes a particular way. Let's get them to come out because we want a particular political outcome. So now let's, let's, let's forget about America for a second. This reality of this kind of uh, power, which is all in these ephemeral experiences where people get you know, things projected to them, no one will ever know that they saw it except that person, is now potentially in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. Now that to me is a wild threat. It is absolutely wild. It's a threat that we haven't taken seriously enough until now. I do think that we as Americans, when we're dealing with hostile foreign powers, we tend to be naive. And that's because we forget that, you know, being, being an American and growing up in New York or Chicago, you know, life for you is, is quite different from um, life for somebody in, in Russia or China somewhere who, who, who has always been underneath this authoritarian government and, you know, might not have the same outlook on life. It's just, uh, you know, we, we just have to remember that, uh, you know, not all, of, not all of the world is a liberal democracy, that there are different systems around the world and that we can't simply trust TikTok coming from this authoritarian uh, background within in, in an authoritarian country to, um, you know, to simply automatically follow American laws as they are written. Uh, it's just not how the world works. It's not how the system works. And it's just, it's something we need to be mindful of as we deal with the TikTok problem. There is this fine print. And in this case, you've shown how, you know, the fine print exposes a, a, a really crazy reality, I would argue. But the Chinese Communist Party, I've never seen any evidence, right, that they've been interested in carrying what that fine print is if they can get away with it. The WTO finds that it's illegal that there's this technolo required technology transfer. When American companies come into China, they're required to transfer their technology to be able to get the market access. That is illegal? I, di I didn't even realize this until I read it in your book, that this isn't actually an illegal act by the WTO. But has China cared? No. How many American companies have, have agreed to transfer their intellectual property? Hundreds, I mean, billions upon billions of dollars of intellectual property. Yes, billions and billions of dollars. This is something that the Chinese Communist Party has mastered, is looking for ways to extract 
technology and intellectual property from companies that want to do business in China. Um, they advertise themselves, the, the Chinese government advertises China as uh, having a major consumer market. It's 1.2 billion people. It's been growing wildly. There's a lot of money, a lot of profit to be made. But here's the catch. Once you come to China, if we decide that you have to do it, you're going to have to transfer that IP to a local uh, Chinese company. So a lot of, I mean, just so many American companies have tried operating in China over the years. I mean, major, major companies, including Google, um, but they've ultimately been shown the door. It's as if they, they try to open up, they, they, they try to open the door to China, uh, compete with local companies. You know, maybe sometimes they're idealistic and believe that their, their trade or their economic engagement with China will, will open the way to uh, reforms and potentially democracy in the future. The, middle, the rising middle class will want to rise up and change the government. Uh, these are all uh, a fantasy. You know, none of this has happened at all. Uh, you know, I think Google is perhaps the best example of this uh, repeatedly happening in China because Google originally tried to enter the Chinese market. Uh, they were uh, they they were shown the door. They I mean they partially they left voluntarily, but also they were uh, harassed and shown the door by uh, you know by the Chinese government. They were they were out of favor compared to Baidu, which is the Chinese equivalent. Um, but the the experience of Google and the experience of major American tech firms trying to enter China is that look you know china doesn't want your values the chinese communist party uh, you know doesn't want you to open up a major search engine that's going to be open and hopefully uncensored in china they they don't want any of that they want you out of there and i think that's the major lesson that we've learned in the past you know decade or so trying to engage with china that we become more like china rather than they become more like us which is a point that you've made very well. Okay, so that so we definitely need to talk about that. Um, is it bizarre to you? It's bizarre to me. That's why I'm asking the question this way: that Google may have an AI development arm functioning in China. Given everything we've talked about, we know that the Chinese military and the regime itself is, you know, if not deeply intertwined, watching it very closely, but almost certainly deeply intertwined. Yet, you know, they're kind of not as quick to work, for example, with the US military. I just find this like a really bizarre endpoint almost in how a company of this stature, of this size, of this influence in the US and globally is functioning. Yes, American companies, they, they really trip over themselves when they try to justify what they're doing in China. You know, they will often try to cover up their tracks or, you know, maybe try try to keep the information in Mandarin, Chinese, you know, make sure, just, just hope that nobody's translating it, but there are people translating it. There are lots of investigators looking into this. They do trip over themselves and attempt to you know, make it look like they're they're working harmlessly in China when you, but then you you lift the veil, and at least I've found that there's quite a lot of activity going on that should be better monitored and potentially should be illegal in in some respects. Uh, one example, so you mentioned Google, this possible AI laboratory there. Uh, Microsoft is another excellent example of a company that uh, set up a major artificial intelligence laboratory. Um, this is the Microsoft uh, Research Asia. That's the name of this laboratory. Uh, opened up under Bill Gates. It was uh, a public relations attempt to build 
a stronger relationship with the Chinese market. But it ended up evolving into a laboratory that was almost autonomous, that didn't report as, you know, re didn't report as it should to the Microsoft parent company in America. And in the process, it became the breeding ground, the training ground for the, the future leaders of China's artificial intelligence sector. Many of its alumni had gone on to found uh, major Chinese companies that were involved in human rights abuses and in uh, various national security and military abuses and who are now sanctioned by the US government as a result of their efforts. So there's an indirect line, you know, Microsoft didn't you know, Bill Gates didn't pick up the phone and say, please train the, the future of Microsoft a of, of AI officials in China. But, you know, he did set up the institute there that is now being used against us by training all these people who go into, uh, you know, these, these malign companies that are acting against American interests. Right. And this was, I think this was one of the original. It was originally China, and then they renamed it Asia, I guess, to make it sound a little more innocuous, I guess, or something. A little something. more neutral. <laughs> yeah. When I read your book, um, it caused me to go into a state of deep introspection about many things because you actually had a guide at one point and you and he told you the three steps and I thought this was amazing that, that, that this, this guy was so, I guess, astute in his observations but there's basically three elements of the perfect police state effectively, right? So maybe if you could reprise that to me, explain to me what is this police state? What are the elements? And um, how is it? And we'll, then we'll get to it. How is it that Xinjiang became that? Yes. So the perfect police state, you know, when I was writing the book, there was uh, one of the most interesting things I found was that, you know, many of the Uyghurs who I was talking to, including my guide in Xinjiang, were, you know, they were not just a Washington propaganda. They were well aware of what was going on. They were informed about, you know, what was happening around the world and they were not simply in the dark. You know, they were they were not simply suffering like these passive sufferers who just are wait, you know, the communist party is just acting against them and they're just going to camps and that's it. They were very sharp on what was going on around them. Um, my guide told me that it was a three-step process, that he had been observing it very carefully. The first step was this process of um, ensuring that technology, the, the social media apps, these various technological apps and, and websites and so forth f were in the hands of everybody. Um, they were in the hands of regular people and then they were being used to blast misinformation at them, that you know, there's a major terrorist threat. Uh, the terrorist threat comes from the Uyghurs and you know, we have to do something about this. The Chinese government, the Communist Party must act. Uh, that was stage one. So it was a process of kind of alienating and otherizing this particular group to the point, you know, and just blasting out the propaganda to the point where people started. Through this buying. new technology that's basically ubiquitous, you kind of can't live without it and now you have social, you know, well, I guess we'll get to talking about social credit scores, but now you have apps that you need to be able to function in society on these phones. Yep, now you, you are chained to your phone. You, you must rely on WeChat to, you know, purchase items at the local 7-Eleven convenience store. Uh, you know, th there, was, there was so much that was happening, just a sea change of technology in China at this time, and the Chinese government exploited that to, to feed people with misinformation, to spy on them, to gather data on them, but no, people didn't really have a, a choice. 
and then and then to other this one specific group of people. Okay, what are the other two steps? Um, so the second step was to, uh, to to create these artificial categories. So this goes back to the the otherizing that I talked about before. So um, looking for ways to separate the population um, to, uh, you know, to, so for example, to bulldoze cultural, cultural artifacts, to uh, clear out certain neighborhoods and move people. So move the local Uyghur population to different areas from the majority Han Chinese population. This is also something that the Nazis were very good at um, in, in, in terms of moving Jews out to creating the ghettos, ghettos creating ghettos. Uh, so it's, it's, both, it's the physical and the digital separation of these two groups, of otherizing them and making it clear that they are the national enemy, they must be tamed or they must be uh, oppressed in order for the nation to survive. The final step, the third step, was uh, what my guide called the panopticon, which was, uh, th this is a, an old term that influenced George Orwell in 1984. It's this concept of a, um, a so, it, so imagine that there's a circular, prison camp and there there's a, a a sentry post a guard post in the center and this uh, this guard so there, there's one guard in this post who can look out at all the prisoners he can see all of them because it's it's a giant circle around him but the way that it's set up they the, the prisoners can't see the guard looking at them so they can only guess if they're being watched at any moment and they might be you know they might be being watched. Maybe the guard is looking at them intently. Maybe he's watching TV and taking a nap. There's no way to know. But this is a very good system for controlling uh, the prison population because everybody is scared of being watched and nobody wants to get in trouble. This is the system that the Chinese Communist Party set up in Western China back in 2016 and 2017. It was a digital panopticon in which everybody was constantly being watched by an artificial intelligence system which was called the IJOP or the Integrated Joint Operations Platform. And this platform, uh, you know, it, would, it would gather data from, from smartphones, based on people's usage. It would you know, gather data from, from cameras. This region had cameras that cover almost every square inch. Uh, you know, it, it, like they, they would track everybody, track every, everything that they're doing, and, and, and try to create this sense of fear that the, the, the party is watching and you have to fall in line. Now, a lot of times, you know, the AI turned out not to be that sophisticated. The software would, you know, make silly predictions like someone's going to become a terrorist because they, you know, bought too many cigarettes that day. It, it, it would make these silly predictions that didn't make sense. Um, but the point of that was to scare people. Like, you never know if you're going to be the next target. So it's better just to fall in line, become a robot for the Communist Party to survive. I often on this show, maybe not that often, but I've talked about the film *The Lives of Others*. It made a, prof you know, impact. I don't. I think it's 15, maybe 15 years ago that it came out. Of course, talking about uh, East Germany and sort of showing what uh, police state, what living in a police state might look like. What struck me about that film is that. For the first time, I saw something that might explain to people who grow up in a free society where you're not expecting everyone and every device to be spying on you to understand what it's like to be in a society where, which is structured that way. Back then, the, the Stasi were arguably the best at it, but, but the, the technologies weren't as sufficiently advanced that every aspect of your life would, could be scrutinized or might be scrutinized. 
but so I'm going to plug that film. <laughs> Folks, go see it if you if you haven't. It's it's a very important film. But now what we have, what you're describing, is this taken? You know, they say on steroids, but it's even more than on steroids because it's almost like it's like your gait. Are, are you moving in a way that might seem like you're drunk? Are you doing what? Everything about what you're doing is now in some way being categorized and sent to a central uh, repository where an AI studies it and determines things almost in this, and I'm thinking of another film, Minority Report, you know, the sort of pre-crime way. And actually, this idea of pre-crime figures into uh, things here. So tell me about this. Yes, yeah, so the, the AI system, the IJOP, is a pre-crime system. It's, tr it's gathering all this data uh, about everyone it can in the region of Xinjiang because it wants to predict who will become a terrorist and what kind of behaviors are indicators of who exactly will become a terrorist. Um, so I, I've gone through lists. The, the Chinese Communist Party is extremely boastful about what it's done despite all, it's a very dark and heavy topic and we're talking about genocide and crimes against humanity, but surprisingly Communist Party officials are very blasé about putting this on the internet and bragging about everything that they're supposedly accomplishing. I've looked at lists of behaviors that the IJOP does not like. And one example will be, for example, um, buying a tent. Going out and buying a tent, suddenly uh, purchasing a tent is something that you know regular people don't do often. So the AI system is trained to look at someone who buys a tent and to see that as something that's somehow suspicious or indicative of a terrorist mindset. Um, this is predictive policing. This is the the goal of being able to create a, a total security state. That's what China wants. It's a total surveillance state that not only documents what people are doing right now, but is supposed to know what people are going to be doing one week from now. The, the goal is to eradicate all crime, all terrorism, create, a, you know, kind of like this Truman Show world almost in which all of life is plotted out and planned in the future. It's truly dystopian. How far away is that from what you have seen in Xinjiang, from what you understand Xinjiang operates right now? And frankly, other parts of China, which are, as I understand it, adopting the model to various degrees. So it's, it is already spreading throughout China. Um, back when I was writing the book, I had started researching it back in 2016 when this uh, police state was starting to emerge. Uh, I had seen reports, and I was alarmed at the reports that were coming out, so I decided to go out there, go see it for myself. It was absolutely a dark, horrendous, scary sci-fi movie. It felt like Minority Report with Tom Cruise, as you said, where you know the, the systems are trying to predict what people are going to do, and they're taken away to concentration camps if they're believed to be suspicious. Um, this this system has already been spread around many parts of China. Uh, Tibet has been enacting some of these measures. Also, Inner Mongolia, another region that is often not uh, not really examined as much as the other regions. Um, also, the rest of China has now been engulfed in 
these systems of uh, social credit, which you know they're they're not as repressive as what is happening in Xinjiang because they're not targeting the minority, um, you know, in these other parts of China. But they're repressive in the sense that they track people's purchases and, and credit histories, and you know, can they be reliable to buy a house? Uh, you know, can should you be allowed to purchase uh, an airplane ticket and travel overseas? Like, do we trust you, the state? enough to give you this privilege to you know fly to America for two weeks and then fly back. Um, that is what is scary is that even if there are no concentration camps in Beijing in the capital right now, there is a system of total surveillance that has enveloped the whole country and most recently has done so with the COVID lockdowns in China, which are very, very extreme. Well, no, exactly. And we've seen footage of, you know, people lining up in masses trying to get their vaccination status updated, for example. And we've seen also examples of how this, you know, vaccination status has become one of these, you know, sort of a key piece of this uh, surveillance regime. Right. And in fact, there's and there's other examples where we've seen where people obviously for political reasons had their uh, vaccines had a swapped from from green to red all of a sudden because they did something wrong politically, right? So it's almost like we're seeing the application of this technology. But the, here's the part why it, I became introspective. This type of technology is not only in China now that this is being applied. No, it's not. It's it's spreading. It's going everywhere, and this goes back to the problem of TikTok. You know, what what is it that separates TikTok and ByteDance operating around the world from what's happening in Xinjiang? Like ByteDance, they might not be literally running the concentration camps, but they've been involved in suppressing and censoring news about these atrocities. Um, they're using fundamentally the, the, the same technologies as what the Chinese government has been using to monitor and surveil its people. Um, the lockdowns have only been more alarming in China because they've been just so repressive to an extreme that it's like all humanity has been stripped of the major cities of Beijing and Shanghai. You, you can't even, I mean, people will, there are these videos that you've probably seen of people standing on their balcony during the lockdowns and a, a drone, police drone will come by and order them to go back into their room just because, you know, they're on their balcony for just five seconds and that supposedly is a major pandemic threat to the Chinese nation. I, I think that the real reason for these lockdowns, you know, I'm sure people in the Chinese government know that they're ineffective. They're not going to stop COVID, but it, it gives the sense of control. You know, it makes it clear that we are the ones who have power over you and you have to do what we say, even if the lockdowns themselves do not have, you know, that sort of intended effect of stopping COVID. The AI and the system being wrong is actually a feature, not, the, not a bug, as they say, right? Because that creates this sense of insecurity. I might be next. I didn't actually do anything wrong. Or maybe, or am I doing something wrong? And this is a very weird mental state to be put into, I think. And it probably obviously affects people living in this kind of panopticon. It does. It does. This is the riddle of... Chinese Communist Party rule. The riddle is, you know, where is the line and how far can I go before I'm crossing the line? The Communist Party never makes the, the line fully clear. It's simply 
if they want to target you and they want to make an example of you and they want to oppress or surveil you in some way, then they'll draw the line, but they're always going to draw the line uh, you know, far behind you. You've already stepped over it. So nothing you do is going to pre prevent them from taking you to a concentration camp. You know, nothing you do is going to prevent the Communist Party from arresting you on a, a lockdown violation. Like if they want to harass you and threaten you, if you are a dissident in Hong Kong or you're a Uyghur Muslim practicing in the West, they will do everything they can to make your life as difficult as possible. A number of our viewers I know will be listening to this whole conversation and thinking to themselves that they're worried that they're seeing the seeds of this sort of thing happening in this country, in my home country of Canada, in the West. We have emails, for example, that show that the CDC, you know, Center for Disease Control in the US, essentially colluded with social media, in this case Facebook, to basically censor dissident voices around these lockdown policies in America, the people that wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, for example, which turned out were an extremely important voice that weren't heard, which may have arguably, you know, basically prevented these cataclysmic policies for having been put into effect economically, socially, and so forth. We're just beginning to see the ramifications. But, you know, when you talk about all this, I start thinking about how, you know, government and corporate here seem to be somehow colluding, working together. And is this, you know, are you worried that, that you know, we're, we're seeing the seeds of what's happening in China happening here? Yes, th this is something that worries me and something that I've been thinking a lot about too. You know, at, at what point does what's happening in China start to also look like what's happening in America? Um, you know, we have a handful of social media giants that that control our platforms, that control the flow of information, which which does give give them enormous power. Uh, you know, we have a, a White House that you know, I mean, might not not always the most responsible in terms of its own decision making. Um, but you know, at what point does what's happening in America start to look like? Uh, you know, the collusion of, of government and corporations to kind of create, uh, you know, a, a, a very, I guess, over-moderated information environment. And it's true what you're talking about. So going back to the pandemic, um, there were voices that were censored or shut down uh, because they were deemed to be spreading misinformation. But now, you know, now that some years have passed and now, you know, in the benefit of hindsight, we're looking back and saying, well, actually, uh, you know, what the CDC was saying was not entirely uh, accurate at the time. Even uh, Dr. Fauci uh, just said this uh, recently at an event um, that, that you know, one of his regrets was that he would have said, he, he wishes that he would have said at the time that we're making decisions based on all the available data we have. We're, you know, we don't know everything yet. And once more data comes out, you know, then, we, then we know what's going on. That's, that's essentially the gist of what he was saying. Um, you know, and this is one of the problems with the label of misinformation, and it's something that worries me. You know, at what point does a fair criticism or a fair point being raised suddenly become misinformation? You know, if you go on uh, Twitter or Facebook and you're questioning some government, a U.S. government policy or a Facebook 
deplatforming policy? Like, at what point are you spreading something that's totally reckless versus spreading information that is just simply the healthy questioning and skepticism that we should have in a democracy? And I, you know, I, I think that um, especially, I think that the left in particular has gone too far on this. I think that they've attempted to to use the term misinformation as like this blanket term for you know anything that that might hurt someone's feelings or offend somebody. Um, I think that this whole misinformation debate is spreading into something different. I, I mentioned to you that a certain former U.S. senator told me at one point that you know he really believed and i and i believe him <laughs> he believed that we could change china help it become a more democratic a more a fairer open system right a free a free system um and he said well actually but i think they changed us and i i agree with that i think so i think that the chinese system has changed us and i think that you can um, get the answer to that by asking any major corporate CEO of any major uh, company operating in China, wh what do you think about uh, China's human rights record? Just you know, go, go to uh, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, who uh, about a year ago announced a major expansion into the Chinese market, which was widely criticized in, in the finance community, um, and ask somebody like that, well, you know, what, what's your stance? Do you condemn the genocide of the Uyghurs? Do you consider it a genocide? Uh, you know, what is your stance on the lockdowns in Beijing and Shanghai? What is your stance on Tibet, on Taiwan, Falun Gong? You know, all these different groups. Um, the, the typical response that these executives will give is that they are not, you know, they are, they are not diplomats. They're not, you know, they'll, they'll often say, we're not human rights activists. We're not diplomats. We're just here to do business. So. What they're admitting is that they don't care. They just want the money. And this is problematic in America because we are a democracy. You know, we're supposed to care about our values, and those values should be embedded in our companies too. You know, it's not simply that you push aside your values when profit is suddenly being discussed. This is, this is a debate that goes back through American history. I mean, this is not uh, new to our times, but the question of the corporation and its role is something that I think we need to pay closer attention to today because a lot of big corporations are acting against America and turning us into something more like China with this vow of silence that we are not allowed to, you know, we're not allowed to criticize China. We're not allowed to raise the problem of human rights. We must take a vow of silence in exchange for the promise of profit. Well, so this is actually quite interesting. You know, you'll recall, you know, back in 99, right, when uh, the Chinese regime outlawed Falun Gong, started persecuting practitioners. I was thinking about the othering you were describing. They didn't have the, the pocket tools for othering people at the time, but they did have, you know, the whole TV media. And so I think there were like 500,000 pieces of state propaganda that went out demonizing these people, you know, basically making them enemies of the state. Just a, a reason to show why is it okay to persecute these people, right? American companies went in, in some cases, you know, there, there's been multiple court cases on this, you know, basically advertising themselves to the regime that they can help them find Falun Gong practitioners, for example, right? We kind of know where, where, where this has gone. This whole organ harvesting uh, you know, regime was created with this you know, huge 
prison population, in the labor camps. Anyway, terrible things happen. And to me, the logical conclusion of all of that, because we didn't act, because we just sort of kept quiet, as you, as you say, is Xinjiang today and, that, and the perfect police state. If a regime is doing this sort of thing, right, how could we trust how can we trust a regime, even if you're a company, let's say I'm you know, Larry Fink or whoever it is that wants to put a lot of money in there, how can I trust them if I know, and of course they know, the, the horrific things they're willing to do to people? You can't trust them. I think that's the only answer. Um, you know, companies, they, they go in on the assumption that uh, you know, China will change for them, that China will open the red carpet and welcome them in and, and help them make a, a lot of money. Um, but a government that does this to its people cannot be trusted. That, that same government, you know, they, they might welcome you today as a company operating there, but tomorrow they might show the door to, you know, to anybody. They, they could show, show the door to BlackRock, to Larry Fink. You know, they could say, well, thank you for the IP. Going back to what we talked about earlier, thank you for, uh, BlackRock is a good example of a company that has some major uh, IP in the FinTech area. Um, so predictive analytics relating to uh, where to invest your money. So, that, so BlackRock has a system that goes back uh, in time about 50 years and that documents all major news around the world and then attempts to predict how news events today are going to shape the market. So it, it helps move around people's wealth based on, on that. I mean, th this kind of IP is enormously valuable. And you know, I, I don't personally know what kind of uh, you know what, what kind of system BlackRock has in place to protect that IP, but that's a, that's just one example of something that the Chinese government would love to have its hands on. I mean, there, I'm sure there are Chinese employees in BlackRock who are thinking about this already. Like the, the Communist Party is instructing us to steal the IP, so just go into BlackRock and see if we can take it. Like if they treat their people that way, if they if they abuse their human rights, they're also going to abuse foreign companies. Like they don't see that as a separate issue. Well, so I'm, I'm going to ask the question, this question again, um, and you've already answered partially, but like, how do we change policy to try to address this threat that we seem to keep bolstering? Yes, and it's, it's a tough question because the question of how do we counteract you know, a major international threat is always a hard one. How do we you know, how do we counteract China without accidentally starting a war, for example? Um, I mean, personally, I'm, I'm a China hawk, and I am in favor of stronger sanctions, of protections. I think that the U.S. government has done a good job of, of putting um, certain groups of refugees at the front of the line. So if you're a Uyghur, you, uh, there, there's a new bill that's going through Congress that is going to push them to the front of the line. I think this should be extended to Tibetans, you know, Falun Gong, as you're saying. Uh, you know, I think that we need to recognize what's going on. Part of the issue is that China is an extremely opaque nation. It's, it's also hard to get information there. And uh, I think that, you know, one of the solutions that I've been thinking of recently is, you know, is there a way that we could form underground communications networks that get information in and out, that bypass censorship, you know, on people's smartphones to tell, uh, you know, dissidents in Hong Kong or whomever, like, what exactly is happening around the world, what, what, what is going on? 
and this is more than a VPN, I'm not talking about just setting up a VPN and loading Google, but is there a way that the US government can actively circumvent censorship? So say in the, in the case like, you know, if, if a conflict were to break out over Taiwan, is there a network that we could use to ensure that, in, that reliable information about that conflict is getting to the Chinese people and you know they're not simply being deceived by the Chinese Communist Party. So that's just one, one idea. Uh, there's a lot more we could do. Export controls, sanctions. Uh, I think that you know we need to sanction China harder. One, there's one major issue, is the one of farmland being bought up by uh, Chinese Communist Party connected companies. You know if if conflict does heat up in the future, that is land that can be used against us. It can be used to spy on us. A lot of that land is right nearby sensitive U.S. military military installations. There's a bill going through the California, uh, the, the state level Congress right now to attempt to ban these kinds of uh, foreign farmland buyouts. Um, but I think that we need to do more you know, with our laws to ensure that it's hard for these bad actors from the Chinese Communist Party to actively be here undermining American democracy. The Chinese regime has a massive lobbying arm in Washington, D.C. Um, and, it, and furthermore, as you astutely mentioned earlier, many companies are really kind of beholden to the regime, especially if they're very active there and they have a lot of money or manufacturing invested. Um, there's nothing of this nature in the other direction that I can see. So this is a very asymmetric type of leverage, right, that the regime has over this country and frankly the West. It is, it is, it is. Uh, a very, I, I think asymmetric is the right word. Um, you know, Chinese government entities can hire American lawyers and lobbyists to work for their behalf in Washington, D.C., but can, uh, can the American Pentagon uh, hire a lobbyist in Beijing who's going to go knock on the door of the Politburo and, you know, tell them what they want? Uh, I think that our... It's, pre it's preposterous to think about, right? It's, <laughs> it's almost it's, it's, it's hilarious when you say it. Like, I'm just laughing to myself, right? Yeah. What? That's impossible. Yeah. That's just so out of... And it's not just lobbying, but going back to farmland, Chinese companies that are shown to be connected to the CCP can buy vast acreage, uh, acres of, of farmland right next to U.S. military bases, but... Could the opposite happen? Could American investors go to China and open up, you know, a, open a giant farming plant near the South China Sea, near all the the islands that are being uh, filled in there, all these fake islands, and just you know watch Chinese naval movements uh, in their free time? I mean, like that would be preposterous. It would be absolutely ridiculous. So why is it that we have uh, this open system of laws and procedures that you know? allows countries like China to you know, abuse, like to, to use against us, but then uh, we can't do the same thing there. I think that reciprocity is uh, an important concept here. And reciprocity, you know, I think that if Americans can't buy farmland in China, for example, then um, you know, people connected to the Chinese Communist Party are barred from buying land in America too. I think that's just common sense. Final question as we finish. Um, some people who are on the hawkish side um, would say really the only thing that's possible is to really foundationally decouple the economies. What do you think? 
I do agree that we need to decouple to a large extent, um, but realistically, I don't think we're going to be able to decouple completely because the world that we live in now with all our technology and our interconnected uh, networks and, and globalization, all the globalization that's happened over the past 20 years, it's not something that we can realistically do in a short amount of time. I mean, it is, I do agree that we should work towards decoupling. We should decouple strategic industries. So semiconductors should be decoupled. Uh, surveillance equipment, certainly decoupled. Um, anything with a military application should be decoupled. Um, but uh, realistically, there are other areas that you know maybe just can't be decoupled anymore. There, uh, there are there are a lot of American companies that operate in China uh, that have manufacturing plants there, and they don't want to move their plants because of the costs to them. Uh, you know, one possibility is the U.S. government could help subsidize the movement of plants out of China into Vietnam and, and India and other places. Um, but I don't, I haven't heard that proposal yet in Washington, D.C. It's something that we should look into. And I think that it would help enormously to ensure that our supply chains are not tainted, that, you know, we are not buying products made with slave labor and that our, you know, our equipment is not spying on us because it was made in China. Well, Jeffrey Kane, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Jan. Thank you all for joining Jeffrey Kane and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelek. TikTok did not immediately respond to our request for comment.